0: Welcome to the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, where we talk about how to make marriage into a passionate adventure and not a boring to-do list. And today, we're going to get really passionate because I want to talk about the theology of sex. Like, what in the world did God actually mean when he created sex, and why did he create it the way he did? I've been talking on my blog a lot, actually, lately about this. We got super clinical and we talked about the theology of the clitoris and the theology of the penis. And I actually want to talk about some of those things today and see if we can wrap everything up in a nice, pretty package. So what was God's intention when it came to sex? God, I think, created us to long for one another. It's natural to long to want to be with someone of the opposite sex. And we feel that even as children. And I remember as a little girl wondering who I was going to kiss. And you, you know, you think about kissing someone and you just want that special someone in your life. That's a natural thing. There's nothing wrong with it. It is part of our innate makeup. I think that the reason that God made us this way is as a picture of how he feels about us. I've shared this on the podcast before, but I think it's an important point. Back when I was in junior high, I remember this one particular Sunday, I was sitting in church with all of my junior high friends and the pastor turned to Genesis chapter four, verse one, and he was reading from the King James version of the Bible. And that verse said, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived unto them a son. And of course, we all started giggling because we thought that was hilarious. Like Adam knew his wife as if God was embarrassed of using the real word or something. But actually, when you look at that verse, something really interesting happens because the Hebrew there for the word "know" is howda or yada. It means this deep, intimate longing this deep longing to be totally connected with another person. And that's actually the same Hebrew word that David uses in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me, oh God. It's this longing to be connected with God too. And I think that the reason that God uses that word know when it comes to sex is to show us that sex is supposed to be something more than physical. It's supposed to be a deep spiritual longing for connection in every way. But, To go even more fundamental than that i think that the reason that god made us to long for each other sexually in that way to long to be totally connected is so that we would get a picture of what our life with god is supposed to look like what eternity is supposed to look like even what the trinity looks like god wanted to give us an experience of real intimacy sort of a word picture that we could understand how much we need to long for him and how much we do long for him and almost a longing to for completion because isn't that the picture of sex You know that the two are becoming one that you're getting something that is somehow missing this is not to say by the way that a single person is not fully complete that's not what i'm talking about not at all and the bible makes it very clear that single people can completely find their worth and, and their completion in Jesus. But I do think that the reason that God created sex the way he did is so that we would get this picture of this longing that we should have for God. I mean, God created us to long for each other, which means, by the way, that sexual attraction is natural and is not a sin. I was talking about that this week on the blog on how noticing someone is beautiful it is not the same as lusting after them. Uh, noticing is something that just happens. Lusting is something that's deliberate, and that's a very important distinction. I'll probably do a podcast just on that one day. <laughs> but um, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't try to eradicate sexual attraction or or penalize it in some way, because then we're just in a losing game. God created us to long for each other, so let's take a look at this longing a little bit more. Uh, Blaise Pascal, in the 1500s, he was a philosopher, and he talked about this God-shaped vacuum that we all have inside of us which is is like this hole that only God can fill. And that's the longing that we feel to know God. It's like it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that he has put eternity in our hearts, but no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So we long for God, we don't completely understand him. And I think in a similar way, God made us to long for each other, even if we don't completely understand each other. You know, Even if we can't completely and utterly be one, we want to know each other and so that that is why he gave us this longing for each other but it goes beyond that because the longing if the longing is to be fully known and still fully loved then it's a longing where vulnerability is a large part of the reality okay so vulnerability is a large part of our sexuality i think that's why we have sex naked i you know if you think about animals where it is so much more of a simple animal instinct. There isn't this emotional or spiritual component to it. They have sex uh, rear entry position. So there's no emotional connection where they're looking at each other. Uh, it's over and done with very quickly. It's a very different thing than the way that God created humans to have sex. So it is this, this vulnerability. She is literally letting someone in and he is literally leaving a piece of himself behind. And, and so this vulnerability embedded in sexuality. So when we think of sex as only physical, I think we miss the bigger picture. You know, you can be vulnerable when you can trust. And when there's commitment, you can't trust someone that you don't know is committed to you. And so in order to be truly vulnerable, in order to really understand this longing and to get it completed, we need to be able to be with someone that we can trust, which means we need to be with someone that we're committed to. That's the recipe for real intimacy. You can't have real intimacy with someone that you're not committed to. Not really. You can have sex with them. You can even have an awesome orgasm with them. And we know that people do do that, but it doesn't have the same meaning and it doesn't have that same connection. It becomes simply a physical thing. And what God is asking us for is much more than that. I think some of the ways that we can understand that too is by actually looking at how he created the bodies. And I talked about this on the blog on the theology of the clitoris um, and the theology of the penis, but I want to take another, I want to take a look in this podcast as well at some of the points that I brought up. So what does the clitoris tell us about sex and about what God intended for sex? Well, I think it's really cool that God created a body part that is only for pleasure. Okay, the only reason that women have a clitoris is is so that they can feel aroused. There's no other reason for that body part. And in men, the penis has several purposes. But in women, it is only one. Which means that sex is supposed to be pleasurable in general, but also pleasurable specifically for women. So God intended for sex to be about women's sexual pleasure. Two, And now let's look at where the clitoris is located, because this is something which causes many women a great deal of consternation. So (laughs) I want to talk about the reasoning behind it, or at least as much as I can figure out. So this is this is according to Sheila, okay? I don't have any special gospel from God about this, but I hope that this may make some connections in your brain, okay? So the location of the clitoris is in front of the opening of the vagina. It isn't in the vagina. That tells us something. The easiest way for the clitoris to get stimulated is a face-to-face connection. Either he's manually touching her or they're having intercourse in some way face-to-face because in order for the clitoris to get stimulation from intercourse, he has to thrust and then his pelvis puts pressure on the clitoris which provides pleasure. That's not to say that you can't use other positions, by the way, absolutely not. And, you know, in some other positions, maybe it's not his pelvic bone that is coming into contact, maybe his finger is or whatever. But I'm just saying that the fact that this is the go-to position means that God intended for sex to be personal. You know, like I said, all other animals, rear entry, but for humans, it's quite different. It tells us something else, too. God could have made women's bodies So that intercourse was the thing that gave us the maximum pleasure, intercourse alone. I'm not saying intercourse can't be pleasurable, by the way. And I've written some posts on um, how you can orgasm during intercourse, what the G-spot is, how you can stimulate that more. And I will put some links to that in the post for this podcast for sure. But in general, most women have a much easier time reaching orgasm through either manual or oral stimulation. And they need a lot of foreplay before intercourse if they are going to reach orgasm through intercourse. In the surveys that I did for the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, I definitely found that a lot of women had trouble reaching orgasm, and that was often due to a lack of foreplay. But why would God do that? Like, why wouldn't God make it so that it was intercourse alone that was so great? And I think it's because for women to feel good men have to pay attention to us in a way that does not give them direct physical pleasure. I think that's actually kind of cool. Like guys have to slow down and guys have to show their wives some attention. If it was intercourse alone that made both of us feel amazing, you could have sex without really paying attention to each other. But the fact that women are aroused through something else means that he has to woo us and he has to help us. So sex works best when the man doesn't necessarily think about what he's feeling, but concentrate on what she's feeling, because it's going to take her a lot longer to reach orgasm than it is for him. But it also works best when the woman does think about what she's feeling. Like if she is allowing her mind to wander, if she is counting the ceiling tiles and thinking about paint chips and not paying attention, thinking that as soon as he hits the right spot, I will start feeling good, she's never going to feel good for sex to feel good, she has to concentrate on what she's feeling, which means that she has to be a little bit selfish. And that's kind of an interesting thing because we women are so used to serving others that the idea of being the center of attention is kind of a weird thing. And yet the way that God made sex was that women are supposed to be the focus. I think it's God's way of saying, yeah, I love you. And this is going to be for you, too. And not only that, but you need to let go. You need to be able to be carried away. I mean, even orgasm. Orgasm is the ultimate in letting go. You can't have an orgasm if you're trying to be in control. And so it's like God's way of saying, hey, ladies, I want you to be the focus of attention for your husband right now. I want you to not worry about anything else except what you're feeling. I want you to stop multitasking, and I want you to be able to let go of control. Those are lessons that we women want and we women need. (laughs) And that's really what God made sex for for women. Okay, now what did men's body parts tell us about what God intended from sex? First of all, sex for a guy is still vulnerable. I mean, obviously, women's vulnerability is the most stressed here because... You know, for her, it can hurt. There is definitely a letting of him in that isn't there in the same way for men. But nevertheless, sex is about being accepted to be let in. Because he is entering our bodies, it's like we're saying, I accept you. I want you. So it's our way of saying to a guy, you matter to me and I want want to know all of you. So for guys, even more so for women, sex is that feeling like I am wanted and I am desired. That's why for most men, like when I said in the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex that men make love in order to feel loved, that's what I was talking about. You know, women, we need to feel loved in order to make love. We need to feel accepted before we can become vulnerable. But for men, it's like making love is their way of checking in on the relationship to see am I really loved? Do you still want me? Because we literally are accepting them as we make love. Another thing that I think is really interesting about guys is that their area of greatest pleasure is also their area of greatest vulnerability. I mean, any woman knows that if you want to bring a man to his knees and if you're being attacked, you go for the testicles, right? Like you knee him, you kick him, you do what you can because he, that will drop a guy. It doesn't matter if he's 6 foot 8, 280 pounds, you kick him there and He will be at your feet in pain. (laughs) So it's like God made men to remind them that their sexual parts, while they might give them a tremendous pleasure, while they may help them to feel connected to someone else, they're also their area of greatest weakness. And so they need to really take care to keep their sexuality tamed. I think it's to remind men that this part of themselves can all too easily take over the relationship. And they can dominate a woman and that can be their biggest downfall. So it's to remind him that he is vulnerable too. So he needs to use his body correctly or he risks being hurt and hurting others. Another interesting lesson, which is kind of the flip side of what women learn, is just as women learn that we need to be able to give up control and to be the center of attention, men have to learn that they aren't supposed to be the center of attention. Both of you are going to get pleasure. He has to focus on you. So what he is learning is to come down a a notch that sex is about serving somebody else. If he goes into a sex session with his wife and he's only interested in his own pleasure, she is really not going to receive any pleasure at all. But if he is concentrating on his wife, then they can both receive pleasure. And that's really the only way that it works. A woman cannot receive pleasure during sex if the husband is not at all interested in her, mostly because if husbands are only interested in themselves, studies show they can often orgasm in as little as three to four minutes, and women need a lot more stimulation than that. And so the only way for sex to work for both of you is if he lets go of control, if he doesn't let himself become the center of attention, and if he focuses on his wife. I think that that is really what God was intending with sex is to take men who often are the the more powerful ones, they're more physically powerful, Um, they're more socially powerful, and to say to them, hey, I wanna take you down a notch. I wanna show you what it is to serve someone else, to care for someone else, to love someone else. And for women, I want you to be able to receive that. So that, I think, is what God made sex for. It can seem kind of frustrating for a lot of women that, you know, why can't I just enjoy the act of intercourse alone as as well as my husband does? But remember, maybe the reason that God made you like this is so that you would have to take longer in foreplay. It's foreplay that is more intimate than intercourse, really, because that's him touching. That's him learning about your body. And so take some time in that. That's okay. That's the way God made us. It's not like you're broken if you don't orgasm just during intercourse. It's that you're actually learning how to receive and he's learning how to be giving and you're learning how to make sex about both of you together. So that, I think, is the theology of sex, the way that I see it. I would love to have your comments. Just send me an email, um, or, sh- or better still, show up on the blog as some of the posts that will be linked to in this podcast, and then, um, and then we can continue to talk about this. Maybe you're engaged, and you're wondering what sex is actually going to be like. Or maybe you've been married for a while, but you're wondering what all the fuss is about. I get it. And in The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, I lay out how God made sex to be awesome, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Check it out today. What makes a great marriage and what do total secularists and Christians have in common? It's time for Millennial Marriage and I am inviting my daughter Rebecca on for this segment. Hey, Becca. Hello. (laughs) And why don't you summarize this? This is a really interesting article that was in the New York Times opinion piece um, this week. So can you
1: summarize it for us? Yes. Okay. So there's this study that happened to look at marital satisfaction in terms of religious ideology and how strongly they clung to religious ideology or okay. how strongly they were opposed. Like like the really far end. They looked at secular, they looked at um, religious, and then they looked at kind of the secular who leans towards religious values and religious who leans towards secular values. Okay. 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 So what they found was that Secular people... like The secular marriages who were incredibly progressive. So, so you're kind super of... Super
0: left-wing. You're super you're left-wing. You're super,
1: super left-wing kind of relationships. That kind of stereotypical looking relationship. And the incredibly religious families. Like, really religious conservative families both of them on either ends of the spectrum had the happiest marriages which is kind of funny and the squishy middle did not <laughs> yes and i think when they say conservative they do talk about like traditional kind of ideas of having one spouse like the, the the dad being in charge of like providing for the family and the mom wanting to be a stay-at-home mom but it wasn't just like evangelical conservatism like it wasn't conservative in the way that we often use the word conservative it wasn't it wasn't and it wasn't trump Jews. Yeah, it wasn't no, like it wasn't evangelicals. Yeah, it was... it's, it's a lot of the values that you see kind of stereotypically put together with a lot of the demographic. But it included Orthodox Jews, Catholics, um, Protestants, and other religious denominations as well. It wasn't just um, conservative Christians versus liberal Christians. It right. was conservative religious folk.
0: Okay, so you've got your, conser- your ultra-conservative religious folk, but doesn't necessarily mean like yeah, like, like super conservative in the way we think about it, but just people who take their faith seriously. People yeah. who take their faith really seriously. And then you've got these really progressive secular lefts,
1: and they're the ones with the best marriages. Yeah, which is interesting because they seem to be complete opposites.
0: But what was the one thing that they have in common? And this I thought was fascinating. Yes, what, so what, this the, is what, what
1: researchers posited. Researchers thought, okay, how on earth are we finding that the two most opposing groups are the two that are the happiest? Uh-huh. And there are, that are answering the questions about their relationships the same. And the answer that they posited was that the dads are really involved with the family. Yes. Because what do the progressive, um, the progressive, more liberal, secular world believe in right now is, well, equal share of responsibility. The dads are just as much a parent as the mom. The moms are just as much allowed to have a job as the dad. Like, there's all these things where everything is equal and so... Mm-hmm there's this pressure for the dads to really step up and be involved and then on the incredibly um more traditional religious side you have Mm -hmm. dads being charged like you are supposed to take care of your kids like love your kids pray for your kids be involved have fun with your family family is the most important thing all these different things so they actually get the same message in terms of um, paternal yeah. responsibility. They just they just have a different
0: why, but it's exactly. the same message. So yeah. So I I, I think I I, I want to talk about a couple of different aspects of this article. So first of all, your marriage is going to tend to be happy if the husband's involved with the kids. Yes, he just should be. You know, and I I like to say that childcare is not like housework. It's okay if one person does all the housework. If 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 um. You know, if one person works out of the home 60 hours a week and someone else is home, then that person is home should probably be doing most of the housework. It just makes sense. But it's not okay for one person to do all of the child care. Exactly. Because child care is not a chore. Child care is a relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and I know that one, one thing I so appreciated about your dad was just how much time he spent with you and how he really loved you guys and got engaged with you and he really knew you. Exactly. You well, know?
1: and because even though our dad was always on call because he was a doctor in a small town with very few pediatricians when we were really little kids, we have so many memories of fun things we used to do. And mm-hmm. just even dad teaching me how to do long division and stuff like that. like <laughs> the silly little things, right? Or just having conversations that kind of come up and spur of the moment because you're already hanging out and doing things and you're already playing a board game. And mm-hmm. yeah.
0: So yeah. So it's so important for dads to, to spend time with the kids. Maybe we'll do another podcast on that some other time too. But the other thing that I just want to point out, because I think that this is a mistake that Christians can make a lot of times is we assume that being a Christian gives you the best marriage. And if you are following Jesus, it should give you a very, very good marriage. It absolutely Mm -hmm. should. And we should have a better marriage than the vast majority. And in fact, this study does show that we do have a better marriage than the vast majority. But we don't have a better marriage than everybody. (laughs) And I, I think that when we make like, see, only Christians have good marriages argument, we actually lose a lot of people in the debate. Like, we lose the people who actually do have good marriages because they're looking at themselves saying, well, I have a great marriage and I don't have Jesus, so I guess I don't need Jesus. And so it's just not a very good argument.
1: Yeah, and above that as well, we actually make our world a lot smaller because we have this idea, I think, sometimes that we can't learn from others who don't share our particular belief system. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, if we only ever look within our own little bubble, we can become very quick... To start believing things that aren't actually true or helpful and it's always good to kind of counter what we already accept as true and right and always the only way to do things and look to see is there anyone else doing it differently and what can i learn from that what can i appreciate about that but then leave For them Mm -hmm. to do, and I'm going to do something different. And what can I say objectively? Okay, I see that it works for them, but I'm concerned because X, Y, Z. We have to be open to talking about these kinds of things because we need to understand that sometimes we do go wrong and we need to have a wide enough area of vision around these things that we'll catch ourselves if we do go wrong. Yeah,
0: exactly. Okay, and here's one last point I want to leave for this podcast. The reason that we follow Jesus is so that we can have a relationship with Jesus. So that... The Holy Spirit can come and live with us, can help us make good decisions, but more than that, can just help us know that we are not going through life alone, that God is with us. He is Emmanuel. When we get anywhere away from that and think the reason that I follow Jesus is so that I can get a better marriage or a better job or have a better life, we're missing the point. And so let's just be careful of how we talk about this. God is God. And we need to know God. And knowing God should get you a better marriage. But you don't know God in order to get a better marriage. The reasoning matters. And so let's put God at the forefront. (laughs) And when we talk about God, let's make sure that we're doing it in that framework.
1: And let's get dads involved
0: with their kids. Yes, let's do that too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Can you think your way to a great marriage? Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage shows how we often think wrongly about submission, sex, conflict, even anger, and how changing how you think can actually change how you feel and act, too. Don't settle for an okay marriage. Get a great marriage with Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. We've been talking about how
0: God made sex, and today's reader question fits in really well with that. A woman writes, I remember you stating that women need to get their head in the game. I personally find that contrary to just feeling and losing control. I'm in my 50s, and sex has always been extremely difficult for me. I was raised with a negative view of sex. My mind wanders during lovemaking. To keep my head in the game, I have fantasized. I know that's a huge no-no. My husband is dedicated to my pleasure, but I have so many issues. I also battle depression, and I'm on an antidepressant that has killed my libido, but I'm determined to change things for the better. Please advise how a woman can have her head in the game and also just feel and lose control, I'm really trying, but it's forever a challenge thank you for writing in because I think a lot of people have that question. And what I'm going to say applies mostly to that question. I think this woman might have some other issues that really do need to be dealt with. Antidepressants can take a real toll on um, people's libidos as can depression. Um, so I really encourage someone who's battling that to also see their doctor because it could be their different antidepressant could have less of an effect on libido. But I understand that that's an issue. And being in her 50s, she's probably dealing with menopause too, and with sexual shame. She'll there's a lot of things going on here. But I want to only deal with today, this idea of what it means to keep your head in the game, because she brings up a really good issue. If you keep your head in the game, how does that mean just feeling and losing control? How do those things compute? So let's look at this. Getting your head in the game, when I said that is more something that we do first, like it's getting ready to have sex. And I think it's something that women need to be kind of doing throughout the day. It's like giving yourself that pep talk, a sexual pep talk. And I will link to that article um, in, the, in the podcast post on, on how to tell yourself positive things about sex. Because if you're going into making love and your head's not really there, like if you're thinking about way too many things, it's not going to work. So getting your head in the game is a two-part process. First of all, it's thinking positively about sex. It's telling yourself, I am going to feel amazing right now. I deserve this. This is going to be awesome. I love my husband. We're going to do this. Because women's libidos, we don't tend to feel aroused beforehand in the way that that men often do. Instead, we need to mentally say, okay, this is something I want to do and give ourselves over. That's actually part of as we were talking in the main segment about a woman accepting a guy. It's part of how... How he feels accepted because we're making that mental and emotional decision, this is something that I want. So that's part of it. The other part of getting your head in the game is getting everything else out of your head. So it's to stop that multitasking. So you're not going to think about your grocery list. If if a thought occurs to you about your son's test tomorrow and has he got his homework done, you're going to dismiss that thought. Like You're going to deliberately not multitask. So when I'm talking about getting your head in the game, I mean, keeping concentrating on what is going on and rejecting all of these other thoughts that come in, because we are such multitaskers that even if you're trying to enjoy things, other thoughts are bound to occur to us. So it's rejecting those thoughts. And then how do you concentrate on just feeling? Because how do you think so that you can feel? That doesn't make a lot of sense. And I, I totally understand her confusion. But what I mean is, isn't so much about thinking as it is about focusing, because there is a difference. It's like when you're making love, you're gonna turn everything else off and you're just gonna allow yourself to feel. And so the deliberate part Is about rejecting all these other thoughts and it's about focusing on your body so I'm not talking about having to fantasize about any weird things and I and I totally get how you know how fantasy can be a a detrimental thing and can make intimacy much harder to attain I mean if you're thinking about somebody else totally wrong doesn't work but instead what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on what our body is feeling and we're gonna focus on pleasure and as we focus on it we can let it carry us along So it's different from deliberately thinking a thought, it's more taking your brain and allowing your brain just to focus and feel, just allowing yourself to feel. It's very similar to relaxation exercises, you know, when you when you lie down, and you just feel yourself breathing, and you reject other thoughts. So that's more what I mean. So I hope that that helps. And I hope that you can experience that. So I hope that all of us will be able to reject all of those stupid little thoughts that come into our brains that make sex not so fun and just be able to focus and feel and love our husbands. Every week on the blog, I kind of like to turn the microphone over to you and share a comment that came in either on the blog or through email or social media or whatever. Um, and this one is a different one. This is someone who wrote in to tell me about what a difference that I made in her life. And I really love this comment and I just want to share it with you. Uh, she says that her friend got her hooked on my website and she's been an Arden fan for at least five years. She says... I bought nine thoughts that can change your marriage and read it voraciously. And then I promptly ordered multiple copies to be able to share with so many friends and young marrieds whom I've been blessed to mentor. Just as an aside, thank you for being a mentor. We all should be mentoring different couples. That's just such a blessing that we can give and please find someone to mentor. Okay. I always told women, I've done everything wrong in my marriage, and if I can help you in any way in your marriage with what I've learned, it'll be worth it. I've read so many marriage books over the years, but far and away the best of them all has been Nine Thoughts, no question. I've even told my hubby, I sure wish I had read this book earlier in our marriage. Truly, Sheila, it is a profound book, profoundly true and accurate, and profoundly simple to read and follow. How wonderful that you give assignments that are easily accomplished and reap such huge results. I can't find all the words to tell you what an incredible good tool you've put into the hands of wives with your book, but I always have at least one extra copy on hand to give away. It's that good. I can't tell you how much that comment made my day. You know, I've been having um, a Twitter conversation this week. And if you look me up on Twitter, you'll see all the fuss that I caused. But I've just been really grieving about the state of some of the marriage books out there because a lot of them start with a really faulty premise, which is the marriage should be husband centered instead of God centered. When a marriage book tells a woman that she should not listen to God's voice because women are more easily deceived and she should instead just listen to her husband, that's actually teaching a false gospel. And unfortunately, that's just what I've seen with a lot of marriage books. And that's not what I did with Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. It's, it's taking a look at some of the things that we hear in church, like that idea of you should only listen to your husband, and how those aren't actually biblical. And it's getting us back to Jesus being front and center. Like I said with Rebecca, whenever we take Jesus and make him not front and center, when we make the marriage front and center, instead of Jesus front and center, we lose out on way too much. And we lose out on what God meant for our marriages. So let's keep Jesus front and center. Let's see what God really intended through marriage. And I hope if you pick up nine thoughts that can change your marriage, that it will change you too. And I'm just so grateful for this woman who is spreading this book around. And I'm so grateful that I could have this tremendous impact on her life. Just a reminder, if you ever read a marriage book, and you think ah, that doesn't sit quite right with me, you're allowed to have that thought, okay. And you're allowed to ask yourself, is this something that Jesus would say? Because Jesus said, he who's seen me has seen the Father. The things that Jesus said are the things that God thinks. And if we're reading something and it doesn't line up with how Jesus acted, then we really need to reconsider that. So just some words of advice as you are reading Christian resources. And I hope that my resources will always point people to Jesus first thanks for joining us for the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. It's been a bit of a potpourri day looking at how God made sex, how to enjoy our bodies, but also how to keep God front and center. Those are really the two themes of my blog too. And if you haven't visited tolovehonorandvacuum.com, please do. Let's keep marriage a fun adventure and not just a bunch of rules. It's my birthday this weekend, so I'm looking forward to a lot of fun, but I will be back next week to talk more about building healthy marriages.